the whole weight of what Paul's going to say is going to fall on us. And it's going to be really helpful that we've got firmly in our mind who it is that's saying these things. Let's begin this morning with our uh, message from Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 1 this morning. As a reminder, last week we began with just some introductory, some preface type material. And uh, that was largely about, we talked about the city of Ephesus. We talked about um, the, the, the pagan atmosphere, the occult activity in the city. We talked about the spiritual darkness there in the city. We talked about the temple of Diana or Artemis. And just how that was the identity of the, the Ephesians in much the same way that if you lived in Niagara Falls, then kind of the identity of that town is the, the falls. In the similar, similar way, if you were an Ephesian, then the identity of where you live was tied up in this temple of Diana. So we talked about that. We talked about the darkness, the spiritual darkness. We talked about the start of the church there. We talked about the richness of the history, the tradition of the church, the uh, the fact that Priscilla and Aquila spent time there, Apollos spent time there, Paul spent more time there than anywhere else, nearly three years. Uh, after Paul leaves, then John arrives shortly after Paul leaves, and John stays for a long time. So the, the, the teaching, the richness of the church there, Timothy goes, and he's an elder of the church there for a long time. So the richness of the church there, the spiritual heritage, we talked about that, the beginning of the church and how it grew in, that, in such a way. We talked about, uh, we, we just sort of set the stage going forward because we looked at the first, we're really through halfway through chapter three on towards chapter four. We sort of looked at this and I wanted to put into our minds last week this perception or this, this perspective that Paul is writing with. Because I think oftentimes as I've looked at Ephesians, particularly Ephesians chapter 1, verses uh, particularly 3 through 12, when Paul's talking about uh, the blessings that, that are ours in Christ and the choosing before the foundation of the world and all these things, I have always felt as though that Paul's talking about all of us. That if we are in Christ, that's who he's talking about. And then we looked at that closely last week and we saw that can't be who he's talking about because he makes this distinction in verse 13 between the we, our, us, and the you. And so clearly there's two groups of people there, two distinct groups of people. And the only two distinct groups that he could be talking about are the one, the Jewish believers in Christ, and then two, the Gentile believers. So he's making this distinction strongly from verse 3 down through verse 13. And then it's implied from that point on. The distinction is such that Paul wants to make a strong case for the redemptive privilege of the ethnic Jew who believed upon Jesus. And making such a strong case that the Jew who believed upon Messiah was chosen from the foundation of the world and, and was the recipient of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and was the, the inheritor of this great hope, this great inheritance, having made such a strong case for the Jewish believer in Christ, he then says, 
And you too, when you believe the gospel, you were sealed with the same spirit that's the guarantee for our inheritance. And then he goes on to build this case. This is, this is probably, I would say, the main theme of Ephesians is the theme of unifying the Jewish believer and the Gentile believer into one inheritance in Christ. And so he begins making this strong, strong case that, that here is the Jewish believer in Christ that is the recipient of such spiritual privilege, but you too, your enmity towards Christ, your hostility, the barrier wall has been broken down and you too have been sealed with the same spirit that is the guarantee of our inheritance to you as well. And so having sort of set that perspective, that's one thing that's going to really loom important for us as we work our way through, as we begin with the body of the letter in verse 3, as we really work our way through that. But we're not there to verse 3 yet. Today we're going to be looking at some introductory material as well as next week as we look at verse 2 next week. Just some introductory material. The letter to the Ephesians is is a letter that really, like a lot of letters, like all letters really, begins with an introduction and then the body of the letter really ramps up. Nowhere is that more prevalent than with the letter to the Ephesians because at verse 3, it's just like Paul hits the gas. He goes from this introduction to full steam ahead with some of the most, not some of the, I think probably the most powerful verses of Scripture that we uh, have in our Bibles. For Verse 3 down through the end of chapter 1, verse 23, those 21 verses are all, I'm sure you probably heard this before, they're all one sentence in the Greek, and there is no more packed full sentence in all of our Scriptures. And it's like Paul just goes from, Five miles an hour to 90 miles an hour immediately at verse 3. But we're not there to verse 3 yet. So we're going to work through a little bit more introductory material today and next week. Today our text is verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Jesus Christ. Then verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's begin there. Let's pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for our time together this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would truly open our hearts to the glorious reality, the mystery that has been revealed to us that we as Gentiles are also heirs to the promise that was given to Jacob, to Abraham, to the fathers of your people, the promise that was given to them that glorious inheritance that is theirs is ours also. We pray, Lord, that this reality, this truth would be powerful in our hearts. We pray, Lord, that just as was Paul's intention as he writes to these Ephesian believers and the other believers who also read this letter as it circled around, we pray, Lord, that that reality would shape our obedience, that would empower our willful obedience to your commandments because of the gratitude and love that fills our heart, knowing that we are recipients of the greatest hope of all. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. So as we begin here in verse 1, it begins as most letters or all letters do in our Bibles. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So he begins here with his name, Paul. I'm sure you've heard as you have studied through letters, through epistles, how letters in the ancient world were sort of written a little bit backwards than letters today. Today we begin with the recipient and we end with the writer. 
In ancient days, they began with the, with the writer and ended with the recipient. And there's reasons for that. Uh, there's some practical reasons for that. The practical reason would be that the, the Ephesians and the others that received this letter, remember it was a, the circular letter that Tychicus was going to take around and read to all these churches. But the recipients of the letter, they would have received this letter in the form of a scroll. And a scroll, as you know, is something that's rolled up. And so as this church in Ephesus received this letter, they would have made a copy of it and they would have kept it. In addition to that, then that wouldn't have been the only letter that the church at Ephesus had. They would have had uh, certainly probably, I would think Priscilla and Aquila would have written a letter to them. Probably Apollos would have written to them. Uh, later on, after Timothy served his time there as the elder, then, then he probably wrote to them as well. John, who was there for a, a number of years as well, would have written to them. Paul writes this letter, which is this circular letter. He probably also wrote other letters to them as well. So there, there would have been a collection of letters that the church had. And because they're scrolls, they couldn't just put them on a bookshelf with a nice little spine on there that says, well, when we want to look at what Paul said to us this time, we'll go and pull this one out. Instead, there was these, these scrolls. And in order to, to get the right scroll, you'd pull it out and so just sort of roll a few inches out. And you'd see the title at the top. And so that was kind of the practical reason. If, if it began with who was writing the letter, or if it began with who the letter was to in such a way, then you'd have to roll a little bit further to see that. So that's kind of the practical reason. They could sort of pull the scroll off the shelf or off the, off the, however they stored it. They'd pull it out, roll it out an inch or so, and they'd see which letter it was. And if that was the one that they wanted to read or study on that particular occasion. So that was kind of the practical reason behind it. But, there's a much more important spiritual reason behind it that we're going to look into today. So he begins with this word, with his name, Paul. Now, as he begins with his name, this reminds me of what I think is one of the greatest misconceptions that I hear over and over and over again in the church. And I hear it from people that are otherwise Bible teachers that I respect and, and revere and learn a lot from, but somehow there's this misconception that just won't die. And it's the misconception that God changed Paul's name from Saul to Paul. Like Abraham went from Abram to Abraham, Sarai went to Sarah, Jacob, God changed his name to Israel, or Peter was Cephas and Jesus changed his name to Peter, right? So I think that that misconception comes just from the fact that Paul experienced this radical transformation and he was called Saul and then he's called Paul. And sort of from that, we just assume, well, it must have been that God changed his name. And the scriptures tell us nothing of the sort. In fact, we read in Acts chapter 13, verse 9, but Saul, who was also called Paul. So there you go right there. Saul, who was also called Paul. There's no name change there. There's one person that is known by two names. Saul, or actually Shaul would have been how he pronounced his name. The Greek language has no soft S sound like the sh sound. It only has the hard S like the s. So as it was, as his as the Bible sort of was, was, uh, made its way into Greek, then Shaul would have been sort of transferred over to Saul. But that's not how Shaul would have answered. His friends would not, wouldn't, have, wouldn't have said, hey, Saul. They would have said, hey, Shaul. So 
Shaul, or Saul, was the man's Jewish name with which he was born. He was christened with that name on the eighth day. But then Paul would have been his Latin name. You see, Paul lived in a very, very multicultural world. We think today that we're sort of the first multicultural people to have ever, ever lived. Paul lived in a very, very multicultural, multilinguistic, multi-ethnic culture. In fact, it was a culture that was really the melding of three cultures together. There was, of course, his Jewish culture. He was born in Tarsus, which was outside the palace of the promised land. But he was born into a Jewish family, given a Jewish name. His father was also a Pharisee, we're told. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. Shaul was his name. So he was immersed in the Jewish culture, but he was also immersed in both the Greek culture and the Roman culture. So he lived his life speaking fluently Greek, probably also Latin, and either Hebrew or Aramaic, or a combination of the two. So he was very multicultural, multilinguistic, and amongst Hebrew or Jewish people, he would have been known as Shaul. Among Greek-speaking people, he would have taken his Latin name as Paul. And that's really all there is to it. So in Acts chapter 13, verse 9, here we have his name, Saul, who was, or Shaul, who was also called Paul. From that point on, he's never called Saul again, except when Luke is narrating events that took place prior to Acts 13, verse 9. In other words, his experience on the road to Damascus. Okay. So after Acts 13, 9, Paul is always called, Paul is always called Paul, except when he's recollecting his conversion or his experience on the Damascus Road. And so what that says to us is that here was a man who just dedicated himself. He was the apostle called to the Gentiles. And remember how he says, you know, I'm a Jew to the Jews. I'm a Gentile to the Gentiles. I'm all things to all people so that I may save some. And so that's simply him just adopting his Latin name because it would have been much easier to pronounce for Greek-speaking people than Shaul would have been for Greek-speaking people because, again, the, the, even the sound sh wasn't even in their language. So it, it wasn't as though he undergoes this transformation and then God gives him this new name, this new identity of Paul in, in such a way that he stopped being Shaul and now he's Paul. In fact, I think if, if Shaul were here this morning... I think he would say to us, no, I never stopped being Shaul. That's who I am. That's who I was born. That's who God made me to be. In fact, later on in Acts, Acts chapter 23, when Paul is on trial there, notice how he says, I am a Pharisee, present tense. That's a good decade. That's, that's closer to two decades after his Damascus Road experience. And he still refers to himself present tense as a Pharisee. So he never stopped being that man who was a Benjamite, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a a Pharisee, he would have considered himself not a converted Jew. He would have considered himself a fulfilled Jew, a completed Jew, a Jew who believes upon Yeshua as Messiah. And so Paul, he begins with his name, Paul, an apostle. Now, the, the beginning here with his name is something that is probably lost on us is just the surprise of this man writing such an affectionate letter to the church there in Ephesus, such an affectionate letter to Gentiles. 
because this was, again, a man that was renowned for his hatred for the sect known as Christianity. Look at look with me in Acts chapter 26, verses 10 and 11. Here's, here's Paul speaking of his prior life. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues. And I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to the foreign cities. So notice what he says here. I tried to make them blaspheme. Now there's an implication there. It's not spelled out there, but how do you think Paul tried to make Christians blaspheme? I don't think he did it by speaking to them sternly. There's probably some physical torture that took place there, some deprivation that took place there. This was a man who was bloodthirsty for for the blood of Christians to, to cause them to blaspheme in his hatred for their sect, to punish them, to put them in prison. He may not have been their executioner, but he sure facilitated their execution. So here's this man who was such a hated threat to the Christian church, now writing this letter of affection to them. Paul, an apostle in Christ Jesus. So he calls himself this apostle. This was his favorite self-descriptor of himself. He would sometimes, when he referred to himself, he wanted to describe himself. There's three ways that he really described himself, outside of a sinner, of course. But he would sometimes call himself uh, a slave of Christ or servant of Christ. We talked about this. That's how he begins the letter to the the Philippians. Paul, a slave or bondservant or servant of Christ. So he liked to call himself a slave of Christ. He also liked to call himself a prisoner for Christ. But far and away, his favorite descriptor of himself was an apostle. More times than than all the others put together, he calls himself an apostle. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. So let's talk for just a little bit about what it means to be an apostle. This office known as apostle, the apostle of the church, we need to sort of filter through this a little bit to understand properly what an apostle is and is not. Because probably some of us know of people who are parts of uh, other denominations, so to speak, of the Christian faith, and leaders will be called apostles. It's important to understand that they are using that word in a much more broad and generic sense than Paul is using the word. Paul is using the word in a very specific sense to mean the office of an apostle. So let's understand the office of an apostle. Uh, The point of all of this from this point forward, the point of the whole message this morning is really this. The point is to really get a grip on who it is that's writing these words. Because as I said earlier, these words, once we get to chapter three, it's going to hit like a ton of bricks. It's just it's just like somebody, you know, the, the old cartoons where they're lifting up this grand piano with this rope and the rope breaks and falls on the guy. Verse three is like that. Verse 3, the whole weight of what Paul's going to say is going to fall on us and it's going to be really helpful that we've got firmly in our mind who it is that's saying these things. It is Shaul, it is Paul, it is the apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So what is an apostle? 
Well, we read back in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 3, where Jesus appointed the twelve. The apostles are always referred to as the twelve. Where Jesus appointed the twelve, He also named them apostles so that they might be with Him and might, He might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons and other, other authorities as well. So the, the word apostle that's translated apostle um, literally means sent one. So in Mark chapter 3, here's, here's how it reads, if we, if we were to sort of transliterate that over to English. He appointed the twelve, whom He also named apostolus, so that they might be with Him and He might apostolate them. So you see the, the connection there, the play on words. He appointed the, the apostolus so that He may apostolate them. And it literally means sent out ones. Sent out with a message, but not just a message, but with a message that carries authority or with authority itself. So the word means to be sent out, possessing of the authority of the one who sent you. The root of the word, or I should say, not the root of the word, but the root of the idea from the Hebrew word, where the idea came from the Hebrew word, carries with it not just the sense of being sent with the message and the authority of the one who sins, but specifically to be sent with the equal authority of the sender. In the Hebrew, the concept is even stronger than in the Greek. It's a strong, forceful concept in the Hebrew that the, the apostole, or the, rather the apostolus is the one who not only has authority, but has authority equal to the one doing the sending. And so that's really going to play a key factor in how we understand this office of apostles. Oh, apostles. Apostles. So let's think for just a minute about what it takes to be an apostle. What it takes to be an apostle, we know, was that Jesus chose you, that you were one of the twelve. We know that. But Scripture also tells us of some requirements, some, some common requirements that all the, the apostles possessed. And it's important, or it's at least, at least helpful for us to see those and understand those. First of all, the apostles whom Jesus chose, they must all see Jesus and they must all receive direct revelation from Jesus. So Acts chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, the context here is, remember, Judas is no more and the Spirit leads the 11 to choose a replacement for the 12th, choose another one. And so in the choosing of the replacement for Judas, we see the apostles, the other 11, wrestling through the requirements of what it meant to be one of them so that they would know for sure that the one they're choosing, or at least the, the ones they're putting forth to be chosen by the Spirit, also possess those same requirements. And so one of them was that they must see Jesus and be the recipient of direct revelation from Him. From verse 22 and 23, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when He was taken up from us, that was what the, the apostle had to be, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. You can only be a witness to his resurrection if you've seen Jesus. And they put forward the two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. So they put those put to those, those two forth who met the requirement of seeing Jesus, receiving direct revelation from him. First Corinthians 9, verse 1, Paul says this, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? So he asked the question, well, how does Paul come into this? Paul never met 
Jesus before his crucifixion, Paul says, yes, I've seen the Lord. He came to me. I've seen him. He has revealed himself to me. Or in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, but when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. So Paul has not only seen Jesus, but he's also received direct revelation from him. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Here's what Paul says there. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation. And that's where he mentions this thorn in the flesh. So Paul saw Jesus. He was a witness of the resurrected Jesus. And he was a recipient of direct revelation from Jesus. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.